listening to the Bible 126 show. Daniel. And I think for many of us, the book of Daniel is a favorite for lots of reasons. Very readable, a dramatic read in and of its own right. It's just one of the most fantastic careers on the planet Earth. He not only rose to power from being a captive to being virtually prime minister of the ruling world empire at that time, but when it gets taken over by the subsequent empire, he rises to power equivalently in the succeeding empire. So he's an incredible guy, very faithful. He and his friends go to, uh, their exploits are legendary. In fact, it's interesting, we'll see that in our study tonight, how many phrases we use in our everyday speech that derive from this study. Your number's up. You've been found wanting, you know. The, uh, the handwriting on the wall. The idol has clay feet. You know, all these phrases you take for granted derive from this interesting story of Daniel. Another thing that I often get asked, because there's so much controversy about hidden messages in the Bible, and our text, uh, Cosmic Codes, is emerging apparently is one of the definitive texts in this, in this subject area. But do people say, gee, are there really hidden messages in the Bible? Absolutely. In fact, the first record of a cryptologist is our friend Daniel. We're going to encounter that in this interesting chapter that uh, we're jumping into. Daniel's a very readable book. It's also an exciting book because it's one of the few places in the Bible where the focus of the prophecies involved are on Gentiles. And uh, so we're going to be in uh, Daniel chapter 5, which deals with the fall of Babylon. This fabled city that was the capital of the first world dictator, Nimrod and emerges as a major power after the Egypt Assyrian empires, the Babylonian empire. And many, many of your Bible helps are misleading. It's astonishing to me to realize how many Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks, and other general purpose helps confuse the fall of Babylon with the doom of Babylon. And one of the things you need to determine for your own selves is to distinguish between those two if they're not the same thing. And you'll find out why I believe they're very distinctly different. The fall of Babylon we're going to look at, and next session we're going to devote two sessions. You see, we're going to use this session is on chapter 5. The next session we're going to focus on a flip side of this a bit. So, fall of Babylon, chapter 5, that's our subject for tonight. Now, you, you recall in the book of Daniel has 12 chapters. First six are narrative or histor historical. The last six are visions, and they're not necessarily in chronological order exactly. Chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends are deported as teenagers. They're in the royal line. They're taken as hostages to assure the, uh, the uh, loyalty of uh, a vassal king that Nebuchadnezzar puts in place. During that siege, he finds out his father's died. He's now king of Babylon, so he goes home to take over the, the throne, and he has a very disturbing dream. And he uses that dream to qualify, to, to prove to himself that his advisors couldn't cut it, but Daniel could. So you know this fabulous story of the famous dream of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And of course, subsequently to that, probably a decade or two later, he gets on an ego trip, probably fanned by his, the rivals that were upstaged by Daniel and his three friends, in the situation where they either bow before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar creates, or they burn. And they refuse to bow, and you know the story. We have the famous fiery furnace scene that we looked at then. Then we have this interesting chapter in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar personally wrote. When you read chapter 4, many people miss that. It's an affidavit by the king of the world at that time. And uh, he talks about the, pro the, the painful lesson in pride, where he was, uh, because of his pride, subjected to mental derangement for seven years. But his throne wasn't taken away. He got it back at the end of seven years. And we have from extra-biblical sources, namely the Talmud and other things, that his care while he convalesced was given by Daniel. I think those two were, uh, had a very interesting relationship. But anyway, we're at chapter 5, the fall of Babylon. Next time we'll talk about the lion's den, that famous scene. But the main point I'm bringing up here, these chapters from 2 through 6, and also the first of the prophecy chapters, chapter 7, the last 12, the last six of the twelve are the visions. But chapter 2 through 7 is written not in Hebrew, but in the Gentile language of that day, because they focus on, on Gentiledom, if you will. And that, has, that gives us a great deal of fascination, because God lays out more than once, several times, all of world history, from Babylon to the, the Antichrist. And uh, we, we, we will have a lot of interest in that for lots of reasons. So that's a quick snapshot. We're focusing on chapter 5 tonight, the fall of Babylon. Now, the fall of Babylon is not to be confused with the doom of Babylon, which we'll talk about next time, which is prophesied in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And your assignment for next time is to read those six chapters at one sitting. There are three pairs, and I want you to jot them down, Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 15, 51, and Revelation 17, 18. And what I'd like you to do, find about 40 minutes of uninterrupted time, and sit down and read those six chapters at one sitting. I want you to do that so the idioms and the phrases are fresh in your mind, and you will experience for yourself an opinion as to whether or not they're all talking about the same thing. I think you'll find the integration there rather surprising, and the specific the, spe uh, the specific specifications in those prophecies are going to be the subject of our discussion next time. And we'll talk about that in Babylon today and tomorrow. The most important city in Iraq rarely shows up in the news, but it's going to emerge to be a very prominent factor on the world scene, if we are in the period of time that I think we are. And there's a way to test it, and we'll see. Now, the kings of the Babylonian Empire, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of a city-state that's a pawn of Assyrian politics, but he had a very sharp son by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was general of the army and ultimately defeats all the major forces in that, in that area, climaxing in the Battle of Karshemesh, where he defeats Pharaoh Necho, and he becomes the, he makes Babylon the primary power in that area. But his father, when his father dies, he, he uh, ends up being king. And he has two sons and two daughters. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar passes away, which he has by the time we get to chapter 5, evil Merodach took over, and, uh, uh, and, he, and he lasted just uh, two years. And then uh, Nergalasser uh, lasted for a while, and then uh, uh, he, his son uh, took over for a couple of months. This is, this is a rough palace. These guys get murdered and whatever. But then Nabonidus takes over. But Nabonidus, it's very interesting if you read secular history, because for many, many years, historians made fun of the book of Daniel. 
because their record showed that the guy that was in charge, the king of Babylon, when Babylon fell to the Persians, was Nabonidus. They knew nothing about this guy Belshazzar that Daniel talks about. But some discoveries in the 19th, archaeological discoveries in the 19th century revealed a surprising discovery that Nabonidus was technically king, but he didn't like being king, and the people didn't like him, and the priests didn't like him. So he spent his time down in northern Arabia on other intrigues, left his son, Belshazzar, in charge. And Belshazzar was in charge when the Persians took over. And it not only validates Daniel, it proved that Daniel had to be an eyewitness because of the details that are there. So Nebuchadnezzar's successors are Emil Merdick. I mentioned him. He only ruled for a couple of years. Uh, then his son-in-law uh, ruled for a brief while. Then Labashi Marduk for just nine months until they knocked him off. Then Nabonidus. But he absents himself to northern Arabia. And his son Belshazzar, who's technically a grandson on the because the, of the intermarriage uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, is the guy that's in charge during Daniel 5. And uh, uh, Nabonidus uh, led, led his army to northern uh, Arabia. And even, even not only the people, he was unpopular with the people, but not only that, the priests of Marduk, which is the, was the principal Babylonian deity, uh, became alienated with him. So he was not popular at home. He didn't want to be home. So technically he's king, but he's out of the picture. And this, the fact that this was well known allowed Cyrus the Great a pretext for invading the lowlands, which he, of course he does. And we'll get into that. Um, for some reasons that'll be clear, I usually, when I'm giving these uh, studies in Daniel, I've usually found an excuse by now to tell you a little story, an apocryphal story, about Lord Nelson. And uh, you'll see why I want to get the work this in here, because Lord Nelson was, of course, very idolized by, by, the, uh, by naval people in general, certainly Brits. But um, he was on the ship, apparently, and uh, the midshipman comes in and said, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there is a French ship off the starboard bow. He says, sound general quarters, give me my red waistcoat. So he sound general, red, uh, general quarters, he gets on his red waistcoat, and they engage the French ship and sink it, and, and uh, it was a good day. A few days later, um, midshipman comes in and said, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there are two French ships off the starboard quarter. Sound general quarters, give me my red waistcoat. So again, they sound general quarters, he puts on his red waistcoat, they engage these two French ships and sink them. And... Uh, Midshipman comes in the next morning and says, uh, Lord Nelson, sir, request permission to ask a question. He says, granted, son, that's the way you learn. He says, I notice every time we go into general quarters, you always wear your red waistcoat. Uh, why is that, sir? So, well, that's a good question, son. You see, in case I should sustain a hit during the battle, I don't want the crew distracted or dismayed because of the loss of sight of blood. So the kid nodded knowingly, and that was interesting. A few days later, he comes in and he says, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, Napoleon's entire fleet is on the horizon. He said, uh, sound general quarters, give me my brown britches. <laughs> I used to tell that story. It was a Spanish armada, and it was obvious, after thinking about it, that I was really anachronistic. You know, Lord Nelson was, of course. Anyway, but uh, you may wonder, what's that got to do with Daniel 5? And I'll show you, it's, it, it's my way of explaining to you a fulfillment of prophecy, which we'll get here in a minute. But let's jump in at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king. Now, by the way, don't confuse Belshazzar with Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar was the Babylonian name they gave Daniel. 
When they, when they renamed Daniel's three friends with Babylonian names, you may recall Daniel's name was Belteshazzar. It's interesting that in Nebuchadnezzar's chapter, chapter 4, he refers to him as Daniel, which is surprising. He's using his Hebrew name. He explains whose name was also Belteshazzar so that people who didn't know that would realize who he's talking about. Daniel apparently was in the role of some kind of prime minister type guy. But don't confuse that with Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar's died. There have been several kings in the meantime for short, relatively short reigns. Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is now in charge. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. But to get the picture here, you need to understand, in the meantime, the Persian army was on the move. The Persian army had conquered many of the small lowland villages that are near Babylon. What they should have been doing is defending themselves, except this is an expression of pride. Babylon, for lots of reasons, was considered by the experts in that day as impregnable. I'll show you why they felt that way in a minute. But here, instead of defending, he's throwing a party. A non-trivial party. You're talking a thousand lords in revelry. The room that they did it in has been rebuilt. This room has been certified by archaeologists and has been rebuilt, by the way. Interesting room. We'll talk about that more later. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, made a big mistake. It's already making a mistake. He made a military mistake by not preparing, but now he's going to make a spiritual mistake. He tasted the wine. He commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father, I should say grandfather, they don't have a word in Aramaic or Hebrew for grandfather. That's a term we use in English. When they say father, that means like a forebear. Father can be several generations prior father. You follow me? So the word father here doesn't mean immediate father. In fact, it means in this sense like what we would, we would translate it grandfather. Which is uh, grandfather Nebuchadnezzar taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. In other words, 70 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar took these vessels out of the temple on the, on, on the first siege. And they're now in the museum across the road. And what he does is go to the museum and get these sacred vessels and let's use them for our party. Bad, bad mistake. He commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Bad move. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and iron and wood and of stone. So this is pagan revelry, you know, desecrating these sacred vessels. Now to get a picture of Babylon, it had a double wall. This is a, a sketch of Babylon. And if you look at Babylon proper, you'll notice the river Euphrates, by the way, uh, feeds the, the, the city for water during a siege, but it also feeds the moat that protects the wall and the moat between two walls. If you zero in on that, this is the quick picture of Babylon proper. And there is a processional way that was the main uh, celebration place. Uh, the Tower of Babel has still got remnants there. The Temple of Barduk is the current big thing. And then the palace in which this is all going on is there on the north side. And so the question many people ask me, are there hidden codes in the Bible? Absolutely. 
And here's one that's quite express. And uh, Proverbs 25.2 tells us, and the, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. And there are many different kinds of codes in the Bible. Several dozen different kinds. All the controversy surrounds a thing called the equidistant letter sequences. I'll leave that. That's not our subject tonight. But you need, aside from that, there's dozens of other codes, and we're going to see one here tonight. While they're having this big party, get the picture. You know, Hollywood could, Hollywood could have a, a field day, you know, staging this thing. Can you picture a thousand lords drinking and reveling? And then, a, then in that same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand. On the wall. I assume they were probably very, wasn't necessarily natural, it's probably very large, who knows, but suddenly this hand, fingers of a man's hand, is writing on the wall. And that was, you can imagine, brought the party to a screeching halt. The same hour came forth, fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over it against the candlestick, or lampstand actually, upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So apparently it was just a hand. No arm, just there's a hand, right? A finger writing on the wall. Can you imagine the reactions? I mean, you know, terror is probably inadequate. To... In fact, I love verse 6. You know, a lot of people like modern translations. I don't think you can improve on the King James English here. Then the king's countenance was changed, I can imagine. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. I don't know how to make it more graphic than that. Can you picture Belshazzar here? Now, see, the problem, one reason I work that silly little story in before I get to this point in my Bible studies, is because when I tell you the joints of his loins were loosed, you have no idea what that means. But if I tell you that Belshazzar asked for his brown britches, you immediately understand what I mean. And if you think that's funny, you haven't hit the half of it. Because God prophesied that to Cyrus in a letter he wrote 150 years before Cyrus was born. We'll get there. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, believe it or not. The king cried, <laughs> the king cried aloud. To bring in the brown bridge. No, to bring in. <laughs> the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now that's an interesting phrase. Not the second ruler. He's the second ruler. There's a clue right there. Third ruler of the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation of it. That's a mystery. Why couldn't they read it? Well, and Daniel could. So there's several conjectures about this. And I'm going to suggest that Daniel is one of the first cryptologists, because he interpreted the handwriting on the wall. Then was the king Belshazzar greatly troubled, his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Or astonished. The party's over, they're all shook, they don't know what's going on here. Now the queen, now this one says the queen here, this is not, I believe, Belshazzar's wife, this is the queen mother. This is the gal that was married to Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuchadnezzar's passed away. Queen Mother's there, still in a place of honor. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. She apparently was not part of this party. That's to her credit. But when she hears this, she comes, makes an appearance. I suspect that was with great ceremony, because here she is. This is she's part of the old guard. And the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. That's a, a standard type of greeting. Let not thy heart thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, actually grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods is found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Boy, there's a lot here just by way of summary, of course. She is recounting something that happened that Belshazzar would only have heard about. He was probably too small or not even around when D Daniel had his big day. Daniel apparently has been in retirement, just like she's apparently in retirement. So he has a reputation that she's obviously very, very aware of. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king I say, thy father, uh, funny she says that twice, we'll come back to that, made master of the ma magicians, astrologers. Notice in chapter 2, when Daniel interpreted that dream, many people missed the fact he then was put in charge. And that's why those guys took advantage of his absence to try to frame his three buddies in the fiery furnace thing we talked about previously. Well, she continues, For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and the showing of hard sentences and the dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. That's quite a remarkable statement for this gal. Is she basing that statement on just his reputation, possibly? Or is she making that statement because she may also have the Spirit of God in her? I don't know. But she makes a prediction here before the fact that he will show the interpretation. For some reason, she's got confidence that if they call Daniel, he'll solve their problem for them. And of course they do that. Then was Daniel brought in before the king. And the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee. I have even heard of thee. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. So he's giving Daniel a quick snapshot here of what the situation is. And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's quite an offer. Daniel wants no part of it, but that's neither here nor there. From, Nebu from uh, Belshazzar's point of view, that's as much as he, he's giving as much as he would be allowed to. Some ornaments, of course, but also a position to be running things. So that's quite a challenge, he would, at least from his point of view. <laughs> Daniel is fun. You know, when you see him grandstand in Daniel 2, even as a young man, he really grandstands that so beautifully in chapter 2. Well, he, at this point, has no reason to tiptoe. His, established, his reputation is established 
well-established anyway, and he also really has a perspective thing. So he, then, <laughs> then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself. <laughs> the missile translation is up yours, O king, see. <laughs> uh, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. But now before he does, he's going to obviously address the writing and interpret it for us. But I want you to notice what he does first. He gives a little speech. And this is not the kind of speech that you'd expect, that you expect, say, in an election rhetoric kind of thing. O thou king, thou most, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, majesty, glory, and honor. He's going to give a little speech here. Hey, punk, your dad, now that, he was a real king. That's sort of the flavor of this thing. Not you. You know, put whatever demeaning term you want there. Um, but now your grandfather there was a king. And he's going to go through this. O thou king, thou most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and a majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew. And whom he would be kept alive. Oh, and, and whom he would be he kept alive. And whom he would, he set up. And whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. He's going to summarize chapter 4 for us here that we just got through. And he was driven from the sons of men. And his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Thou, but thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver, gold, and brass, and iron, and wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many tekel upharsin. So that was what was written on the wall. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Many, which means, which means numbers. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, which means weighing. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And there's a pun there I'll come back to. There's a lot of speculations as to what was actually written on the wall. Using the old Hebrew, it might have looked something like this. There are two different uh, uh, presumptions among rabbis. The Talmud uh, assumes that it was written vertically and backwards. Now this is written from right to left, which is forward in Hebrew, but I wrote it this way because you and I, to us, it seems backwards, so it would be sort of equivalent. There are other traditions, rabbinical traditions, that it was encrypted in a form of encryption called atbash. There are two kinds of Hebrew, at least, two kinds of Hebrew encryptions in the Bible. One is called alban, and it's a transposition. Now, a transposition, if you take the Hebrew alphabet uh, and take the second half of that alphabet, fold it under the first half, 
you now have a very simple transposition. Instead of an aleph, you use the number that's below it, the lamed. If you want a lamed, you use the aleph. In other words, you, you exchange what letter you're using in your, in your plain text to get a crypt, your ciphertext. Your ciphertext would be, you make up the ciphertext by transposing the letters. You follow me? That's a simple transposition. And it's called albam because the aleph takes the lamed and the bet takes the, uh, the mem. So those, those four letters define it, so to speak. So it, it goes by the name album. But it's basically a simple transposition where you shift it over. There's another approach. That's to take the alphabet and take the second half and put it backwards under the first. That's called atbash. And uh, album is used in Isaiah 7, and, and uh, atbash is used in Jeremiah several places in the Bible. Now, if you were a student at Langley, Virginia, studying cryptography or whatever, these are considered, well, they're well known, they're considered historical oddities. The fact that these encryption techniques are in the Old Testament is a simple, you know, is looked at as just a, uh, you know, a historical note, so to speak. But if you have the insight to realize that the Old Testament was God-inspired, then the fact that there are encryptions in there has staggering implications. That the Holy Spirit has a purpose for these. And, that causes, and, and they are what a rabbi would call a remez, a hint of something deeper. But in any case, uh, they call this form of encryption atbash because the aleph and the tau and the beth and the shin. So atbash, you take the first four letters and that gives it its label. But if you assume that the writing on the wall was an atbash encryption, then what was probably written on the wall looks something like this. And what Daniel was skilled in doing was, of course, making the transpositions to get the many, many tekel uh, peres. Uh, the first word is many, it means uh, numbered or reckoned. And he interprets it, you know, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it the way we would say it, your number is up. The word tekel means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. The word perez means broken or divided. Now, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now you'll notice in these letters, they're just con the, the Aramaic is like the Hebrew. You have only consonants, no vowels. You infer the vowels. Perez, if you uh, imply an A rather than an E sound, it's the word for Persians. So the word perez means it, your, your kingdom is divided and broken, but also the fact that the, the word perez, there's a pun hidden in this also, because it does happen. The ones taking over are the Persians. Let's move on. So he does interpret for them. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. However, <laughs> in that night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now, um, what, they didn't, what they don't mention here, but we know from other records, is that while all this was going on, Cyrus's general, Ugbaru, had his soldiers, they had by taking enough of these towns that they controlled the upriver up Euphrates, in the nor nor north, northern towns in the Euphrates. So they they were able, at a prearranged time, to divert the Euphrates, which caused the water levels to drop in Babylon. And the other divisions were south, south of the river. And as the river dropped, they slipped in under the gates. And they took over Babylon without a battle. Hardly any loss of life. In fact, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, there were residents in Babylon that didn't know it for three days, that they'd been taken over. So that's important to understand. Now, to talk about this now, we need to back up a little bit and talk about one of the most interesting guys in history. 
a guy, he's actually Cyrus II, there was an earlier Cyrus, but Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II, and he's quite a guy. Uh, he, uh, he's more than just a great man, by the way, that founded an empire. His empire went from the Aegean Sea all the way to the Indus River. It was a very substantial empire. But he is seen by history, and I mean not just the Persian history, but the Greek and Roman history, as the epitome of a great leader. Because he was brave and daring, and yet he was also tolerant and magnanimous. Cyrus has become uh, legendary in terms of as a quality of leader, very unusual guy. In fact, in 1971, Iran celebrated the 2500th anniversary of his monarchy. So he's, Cyrus the Great is quite a character. He established what's called the Medo-Persian Empire. His father was Persian, Cambyses I. He was the king of Anshan, or Elam, which is the ancient words for what we would call Persian. His mother was Mandane, the daughter of Astyages, the king of Media. So interestingly enough, Cyrus was part Persian, part Median, and that works to his advantage. As he gets strong and he unites the Persians, he, when his, he, uh, Cambyses first dies and he's now, he accedes to his father's throne. But in 550 BC, he attacks his father-in-law, who is the corrupt Astyagus. He captured his capital, Ecbatana, without a battle. That's going to be a pattern for Babylon, too. Cyrus was a pretty shrewd guy. When he could, he would do it by cleverness rather than just brute force. And uh, one of the generals of, of Astyages had been wronged, and so this, one of his generals sided with Cyrus at the right time. So there's some, there's some intrigues behind the scene, but that's not in our focus here. But what he does then, he welds the Medes and the Persians into a unified nation. And that unifi unified nation continued for 200 years. For 200 years until a young upstart by the name of Alexander shows up on the scene. But we're now, having conquered uh, the lowlands, on October 12th of 539 BC, Cyrus's general captured Babylon without a battle. And Herodotus, the Greek historian, the guy that's sometimes called the father of history, very prolific writer, very important writer of the ancient times, about the 5th century. He points out that the Persians had diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver, so that the water level dropped, to the, as he says it, to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which thus rendered the flood defenses useless and enabled the invaders to slip in under the gates uh, uh, and enter by night. So it's a very key thing to understand how Babylon fell, because many of your Bible helps assume that when Persians conquered Babylon, they destroyed it. Not true. It became Cyrus's winter capital. And two centuries later, when Alexander conquers the Persians, he makes it his capital. Josephus tells us something very interesting. When Cyrus made, see, after about 12 days, after he, the general conquers Babylon for him, a few days later, Cyrus makes his grand entrance, right? When he makes his grand entrance, Daniel presents to Cyrus an ancient scroll of Isaiah which contained a personal letter to Cyrus calling him by name even though it is this ancient scroll that was written 150 years earlier. This isn't some spurious urban legend. This is in Josephus' history called Antiquities of the Jews. Book uh, 11, first chapter, second verse. Isaiah died 150 years and yet he records this letter to Cyrus by name. Let's take a look at this strange letter. It's in the what you call Isaiah 44, the last part of 44 and the early part of 45. God says through Isaiah, Thus saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, 
Can you picture? Can you picture? I want you to picture Cyrus getting confronted with and seeing his name there. <laughs> my name's in this letter. That that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. And it continues in chapter forty-five. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. That's a strange word to be used of a Gentile. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Oh, there's that phrase. To, <laughs> to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And he goes on. You know, this little remark in here, I will loose the loins of kings, is interesting because apparently, I infer, that Cyrus had heard about this public embarrassment of Belshazzar. This implies it would be something that Cyrus would recognize as prophetic. I will loose the loins of kings. See, in the polite King James, we don't grab what that means, his incontinency. And the fact that it was a, you know, a, 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 a public murmur about that, that Cyrus would have heard about. And here it is in the letter. It's a, it's, it's, it's a non-trivial specification in this letter. God continues, says, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Can you imagine if you were Cyrus and you've got this letter from God written 150 years ago that outlines your career, calls you by name, and predicts what you're going to do? Would you be impressed? Cyrus was. And we're going... Uh, Isaiah continues, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have called, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. And he goes on. It's a great passage, by the way. You can take chapter 45 of Isaiah and read it just for your own devotion. It's an incredible uh, tour de force by God himself. God, the Bible generally doesn't argue for God. It just presumes it. But there are some great passages where God rises to his own defense in a way that's majestic. And chapter 45 continues, but we'll go on for our purpose here. Now, if you were Cyrus, what do you think you would have done confronted with this? He was duly impressed. <laughs> what he did was to free the Jewish captives. He returned the vessels that had been used in his party that had been plundered from the temple some 70 years earlier. He gave them back. He did a lot more. He went ahead and gave them incentives to go home. He not only freed the Hebrews to go home, he gave them financing to go home. Only about 50,000 took advantage of it. There's the only 50,000, a lot of them were by then perfectly happy where they were, so they stayed, but about a little less than 50,000 go home. And he even... Cyrus even gave them donations to help rebuild the temple. An interesting guy. He was known for being tolerant of other people's beliefs, even though he's a conqueror. And he was uh, uh, very magnanimous. He, he, he is legend, uh, legendary for that very reason. Now, by the way, if you get a chance to go to London, you certainly want to go to the British Museum. It's one of those museums that's a must-see. It's a well worth going but if you do, track down the steel of Cyrus, or I should say more properly, the cylinder of Cyrus. 
It's actually not a steel. People sometimes call it a steel because so many of these things are called steels, but this is actually a, a, a cylinder, anyway. And the cylinder of Cyrus. And uh, it's there on display, usually. And uh, what it says, without any battle, he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to the sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time, and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. It goes on about other things too, but the point is, those are the key words. This is where he is bragging to the world that he conquered Babylon without a battle. And he found the captives and freed them and sent them home. And by the way, his decree is not only on the steel of, of the cylinder of Cyrus in the, in the London Museum, it's also recorded in the opening verses of the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, quote, now the quotes in your, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's quite a statement. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem, close quote. That's in Ezra, chapter 2 and 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Now, it's interesting, the book of Ezra deals with they're going back to rebuild the temple. And for 19 years, they don't get very far because they're harassed for lots of reasons. That's what the whole book of Ezra is all about. Until Nehemiah gets the authority from his boss, 19 years later, to rebuild Jerusalem, the wall. And that turns out to be very important, that distinction, when we get to Daniel chapter 9. But let's move on here. So what happens after Cyrus takes over Babylon? Well, by the way, Cyrus claimed the title of the king of Babylon. That's an important thing. He made his son Cambyses as his viceroy in Babylon in 538. And things were peaceful until his death, till, till uh, Cyrus dies. Then Darius II rises to power. He sometimes calls himself Nebuchadnezzar III. And uh, there's other leaders. We won't go through all of that. In the fourth year of Xerxes, that Xerxes is the king under, in the days of Esther, if you will, the Babylonians made another attempt to gain their independence. And they had a, they, they had a couple of guys claim the throne and, and the revolt was suppressed with much cruelty. But the point is Babylon's still around, it's still a factor. In 460 BC, Herodotus visited and reported the city was virtually intact. Okay, so that's, you know, 100 years later. And then Greece, of course, rises to power. In 331, Alexander was welcomed by the Babylonians when he entered the city after his victory over the Medes at Gagamela. In fact, Alexander is going to make Babylon his capital. He was acclaimed as the king. And nine years later, he planned extensive renovations. He was going to make Babylon a port for a thousand warships. When you look at a map, that's confusing because it looks like it's too far inland, except it's very marshy, and that was his concept was to, to, to dredge it to make a, a, a harbor for, for Babylon. He, he had big plans for Babylon. But he died. He died on June 13th of 323 B.C. His career, by the way, is detailed in advance in Daniel chapter 8. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 8. And his successors in advance are detailed in Daniel 11. You often hear about the silent, the, the so-called silent years, the 400 years after the close of the Old Testament before the New Testament starts. They call that the silent years, four centuries. They're not silent years. They're written down in your Bible, but they're in advance. They're in Daniel chapter 11 in advance. Very interesting chapter when we get there. The Greek Empire, he's, when Alexander dies, 
His four generals, four of his generals, uh, divided up. Cassander takes the, the, the west. Uh, Lysimacha takes a, a, a portion of it, of what we would call Turkey. Ptolemy takes the south, which is the, the prime, prime part of this, Egypt, Syri uh, Cyrene, and Arabia. And uh, he sponsors the Septuagint translation, the translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, by the way. Uh, Seleucus takes the east, Syria, all the way to India. And Ptolemy and Seleucus are the two power guys, and they, they fight continually, the dynasties do, over those four centuries, and that's all laid out in advance in the book of, of uh, Daniel. 11, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is one of those rulers that is very prominent for reasons we'll deal with when we get there. So the so-called silent years you hear about are actually profiled in advance in Daniel 11. But there's atrophy and decay. There's a new rival city called Seleucia that is uh, on the river Tigris, not the Euphrates. And because it rises to prominence, it eclipses the, the, the greatness of Babylon. The, that, that, that precipitates the decline of the ancient metropolis of Babylon. But by the way, in 75 AD, we're past now the, the uh, gospel period, merchants were still there. They kept trying to make a go of it. In 115 AD, Emperor Trajan visits it. In 199 AD, another emperor, Septimus Severus, reports Babylon deserted. Still there, but it's deserted. Not destroyed, deserted. When you get to the 1800s, called the 19th century, there are 10,000 inhabitants that are still on site. The German archaeologist, uh, Robert Caldui, hires locals on site to do excavations. So on the one hand, it's no longer a prominent place, but it's still there with people, building, and so forth. And we're going to talk about that next time. So our next session is going to deal with some interesting questions. Most of, most of Daniel we've been talking about is fascinating history and very important for us to understand biblically. But now we've suddenly stumbled across the threshold because this subject is going to be in your newspapers in the coming weeks and months ahead in some surprising ways that most people, including people who would claim they know their Bible, have no grasp of. But if you do your homework, you'll be able to understand what's happening here. Is it possible that this city will be the final world capital? Is there any truth to the rumors I hear, they're just rumors, none confirmed, that the UN may move there? There's talk of that, believe it or not. What are the specifics you and I should be watching for to test these theories? Most prophecy books have overlooked looked some startling passages that will affect each of us over the coming months and years ahead. And so we'll touch on it. So, so that's why I'd like you to do a... Uh, here's a challenge that we usually use when we talk about these future things. It's a statement that is so preposterous if you accept the statement, you flunk. What I want you to do is challenge the statement through your own study. Here's the statement. That you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history, including the time Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. I'm suggesting that we're moving into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about the gospel period. Now that's a preposterous statement. But to challenge that, you've got to do two things. You've got to find out what the Bible says about these things. Not what Chuck Missler or whoever your favorite radio or TV teacher might be. No, what the Bible says about these things. And the second thing, used to be hard, it's not hard today. Find out what's really going on. And you won't on the 10 o'clock news. Trust me. <laughs> Even the Fox Network misses this one, I think. Unless I'm very much surprised.
No, I think what we're going to need to do, but you see with the internet and with the other, with the alternative press and with the resources available, you can find out what's going on. The Shiites are trying to make, take over to Babylon to be their capital in contrast to the Jewish Jerusalem. And we'll talk about some of the other things next time. Let's read the subject of the next time. So for the next session, we've talked about the fall of Babylon this session, not to be confused with session six next time, the doom of Babylon. And to do that, I want you to look at those six chapters I mentioned, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15, 51, and Revelation 17, 18. And to get the maximum benefit, read those six chapters at one sitting so they're fresh in your mind as you read each one. And with that, we'll then attack Babylon both today and tomorrow, what it means for you and I. Very, very exciting time. That's the next session. So read those six chapters at one sitting for the next session, and let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Boy, we live in exciting times. We live as prophecies are unfolding before our very eyes. But one thing we don't want to lose sight of, Babylon is not our focus. It's interesting as a signpost, we want to study it, understand the times we live in. The issue is not Babylon, the issue is Jesus Christ. You need to understand that everything we hold dear, our entire heritage, our freedom of worship, our freedom of speech, are being aggressively, deliberately eroded. We have adversaries that are very powerful, very persistent. You need to understand that the heritage that you and I have taken for granted for many decades is gradually eroding away. Now some would say that if we're diligent we can arrest that erosion, possibly. Others might say, okay, we need to just prepare for the real world we're in. Let's recognize that the church prospered during the Roman persecutions. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. So even though we may be facing some dark times, as we would think of them, I think we can be assured of this, that God is in control and there's some exciting opportunities before us for the kingdom. And I think it's up to you and I to really understand what's happening and to prepare ourselves for what God would have us to do. And let's pray in that regard. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God that delights in revealing what he's doing in advance. We thank you, Father, for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the prophecies in this treasure we call the Bible, your word. And Father, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our understanding, give us your wisdom that we might have that perspective that will cause us to be resolute and diligent. Help us, Father. We ask you, Father, to illuminate specifically that path before us that each of us may be more fruitful for your kingdom and more pleasing in thy sight. We just do pray, Father, that you would use us, each of us, as we commit ourselves right now into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.